Welcome to In Dispute, the latest news and developments in the tax disputes landscape from KPMG's Tax Dispute Resolution Network. This podcast series will provide timely insights into a variety of tax controversy topics. I'm Sharon Katz-Perlman, and I lead KPMG's U.S. and Global Tax Dispute Resolution Networks. We're glad to have you listening in. Enjoy the program. Hello, I'm Shirley Sicilian, National Director for State and Local Tax Controversy and a Managing Director in the State and Local Tax Practice of our Washington National Tax Office. I'm also a member of the Tax Dispute Resolution Network, and it's in that capacity that I'm here today with you to talk a bit about the U.S. Supreme Court's Wayfair decision. Wayfair was a sales tax case, of course, but its nexus analysis may have implications for other taxes, too, including corporate income tax. When we apply Wayfair in that context, we see a few notable distinctions. They involve four things, retroactivity, nexus with the taxpayer, nexus with the income subject to tax, and indirectly, PL 86-272. So let's start with retroactivity. Unlike a legislative enactment of a new law, which would generally be presumed to apply prospectively only, a judicial interpretation of an existing law is generally presumed to apply whenever that law applies. So that would be retroactively as well as prospectively. There's a whole body of case law that exists around those few situations where a decision may not be retroactive, and no doubt smart lawyers will be researching that carefully at some point. In the meantime, the U.S. Supreme Court's decision itself implies that Wayfair applies retroactively. But that doesn't mean states have to enforce it retroactively. And in fact, the Supreme Court suggested that doing so might violate a different constitutional concern regarding undue burden. So perhaps in response to the court, or maybe to avoid attracting congressional override, the states have been very careful not to enforce Wayfair retroactively for sales and use tax purposes. But other than in one state, Texas, no such guarantees have been announced for income taxpayers. This may be because a majority rule has emerged from about 11 or so state court cases that the Quill physical presence requirement never did apply in the context of an income tax. To be fair, though, that majority rule was not free from doubt in the states where it hadn't been litigated. California is a great example. In the Harley-Davidson case, which was a 2015 case involving the California franchise tax, the California Court of Appeal quoted extensively from Quill and then observed in a footnote that it need not decide in this case whether the Quill physical presence rule applied to a franchise tax. And this is despite the California legislature having previously enacted a factor presence economic nexus statute. All of this doesn't necessarily mean a state will or can immediately apply the new constitutional nexus interpretation retroactively or even prospectively. There are other provisions of the federal constitution that limit imposition of a tax. For example, the due process clause may require that a state issue some form of guidance if and before it decides to exercise an expanded constitutional jurisdiction. 
there may be state law limits also in statutes or regulations that limit or put some qualifications on state exercise of jurisdiction. Until this retroactivity question is explicitly resolved, it may remain one area of some uncertainty for income taxpayers more so than sales taxpayers. The second observation I would make deals with nexus over the taxpayer. This is what the Wayfair case was all about. Wayfair tells us that having sales in a state may indicate that the seller is carrying on a business there, which could mean that it has some form of connection, economic or virtual, if not physical, that is sufficient to establish a substantial nexus and require a payment of a tax. So how do we know when a sale is in a state? For sales of tangible personal property, whether we're talking about sales tax or income tax, the rules are similar. It's destination for sales tax and where delivered for income tax. And it's not usually hard to figure either of those out. But for sales of services or IP, it's a different story, especially when the customer itself is a multi-state business. For sales tax, with some notable exceptions, the tax doesn't usually apply to sales of services or intangibles. But for income tax, it does. The rules are different across states for income tax, whether it's cost of performance or market-based sourcing, and those rules are difficult to interpret. So if the proposition is that sales in a state creates some tax obligation there, the question then becomes, which state? It's not always clear, and the answer is different in different states. The third observation, then, is about nexus with the thing that's subject to tax. In Wayfair, the sellers had conceded that the state had nexus to tax the sale. The court noted this in its decision and said that, and I'm quoting, it has long been settled, end quote, that a sale has nexus in the state where it's consummated so that it can be treated as a local transaction and subject to tax. It just really wasn't an issue in Wayfair. But for income tax, the thing that's subject to tax is not a sale, it's income. And the question of whether a state has jurisdiction to tax the income is not such a simple one. It's also not a new one, though. We answer this question with the unitary business principle and formulary apportionment. A state can only tax income if it's arising from a taxpayer activity conducted within the state. A state can tax an apportioned share of income arising from taxpayer activity conducted outside the state, but only if that out-of-state activity has some concrete connection, that is, it's unitary, with a taxpayer activity conducted inside the state. The policy rationale for a sales factor is that a sale likely indicates some market activity by the taxpayer so that a state can attribute some income to that activity. But in some cases, for some taxpayers, sales sourced to a state may not reflect any activity there. And if they don't, then there isn't any activity in the state that can give rise to income, meaning the sale by itself may not be sufficient to establish nexus with the income. For example, is the place where a customer has customers or where a customer enjoys a benefit or where a customer uses a product 
necessarily the place where the seller is carrying on its own business. In some cases, it may not be. And in those cases, that form of sales factor sourcing based on customer activity may not be a good indication of where taxpayer activity is taking place that's giving rise to income. In those cases, we may see increased controversy in the future. Last but not least, the fourth observation is PL86-272. One result of Wayfair is that more taxpayers may have constitutional nexus with more states. In the context of an income tax, that can mean more taxpayers will want to consider whether they qualify for PL86-272 protection. That could mean PL86-272 may soon be carrying a much heavier load. But the federal statute is 60 years old. Arguing over its interpretation feels a little like fitting a 2019 peg into a 1959 hole. The Multi-State Tax Commission has initiated a work group to consider updating its statement of information regarding PL86-272, which many states have signed on to and which hasn't been amended since 1995. There are interpretational opportunities that may not have been necessary to consider before for both taxpayers and states, and in those cases, we may very well see increased controversy in the future.